Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. I'm excited to welcome Marcos Perez, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Washington and Lee University. Today we're going to talk about his new book, Proletarian Lives, Routines, Identity and Culture in Contentious Politics, from Cambridge University Press. Proletarian Lives is based on years of ethnographic fieldwork and interviews with the unemployed workers movement in Argentina, more commonly known in Spanish as the Piqueteros. In the book, Based on a deep engagement with activists' lives, Marcos argues that participation allows them to engage in practices they associate with the respectable blue-collar lifestyle that has been threatened by socioeconomic decline. He shows that older participants reconstruct the routines they associate with the golden past, in which factory jobs were plentiful. Young activists develop the kind of habits they were raised to see as valuable, and all members protect communal activities undermined by the expansion of poverty and violence. Uh, Marcos, welcome to the podcast. 
And most importantly, congratulations on a, a really terrific book. Thank you very much. Um, so just to start us off, uh, a question we like to ask at the opening of many of these podcasts. Um, how did you become a sociologist and ethnographer? Well, I, um, I was a political science major in Buenos Aires, where I did my undergrad. And, you know, I was really interested in many of the questions that political science, uh, you know, deals with. Um, but I was also very interested in, um, in uh, you know, social movements. And the questions of, you know, how power is exercised, you know, constructed and also resisted. And basically, you know, I worked a few years after uh, finishing my undergrad degree in tons of different things. And then eventually I decided that it was, I wanted to do a, a PhD. And, you know, it became clear that, you know, sociology uh, was a discipline that addressed the questions of power in a way that I was more interested, you know. Uh, political science was fun and interesting, and some of their questions are, some of the way they address their questions is great. But the way I wanted, I was interested in, um, you know, how is power experience, how is social, how are social movements, how do social movements work at the ground level, you know, the grassroots level, uh, that that was a question of social of sociology. And that's also how I became an ethnographer. You know, basically the research questions I had, um, it, was, it went evolving. But, you know, every time I uh, immersed myself in the case, I became more and more interested in the, you know, grassroots level, you know, day-to-day -day experiences of activists. And that's basically how my, you know, you know interest in, in my research questions evolved in a way that, you know, intersecting with ethnography as a methodology. It's interesting because we, we think about ethnography being a little marginalized within sociology, uh, but it certainly is in, uh, in political science. Um, had you done an ethnographic project or, or ethnographic research before starting to work with the, the Picatero movement? No, no. And um, it, the thing is, this is like a social movement a theory is a field where that really brings together a lot of different disciplines. You know, you have political science, you have sociology, you have anthropology, you have a lot of different, you know, fields of study uh, that, you know, many different disciplines just, um, you know, address similar questions. So, I mean, um, probably, yes, ethnography uh, is, is not you know, the most common methodology among political scientists, but when dealing with, you know, social movements, it's, it's a different story. And what, uh, what specifically made you want to study Piquetero movements? I mean, do, do you identify as an activist? Is, is this something, uh, is that a movement that you have some experience with? Not really. I mean, I was... I was an Argentinian living in Argentina in the during the crisis, you know, and the, the great crisis of 2022. And um, I was never an activist, but uh, you know, I was a high school senior. Uh, my high school graduation happened like days before 
the whole thing exploded in December 19 and 20, you know. So uh, while I was personally not involved in the movement uh, until I actually, you know, studied it, um, I was always, you know, I always participated in demonstrations and things like that on my own, right? Uh, the, the human rights movement uh, demonstrations, you know, the Madre Pasemash, all the, all that sort of, uh, you know, demonstration stuff. I always participated. I was always there. And I was always, you know, convinced that, you know, these groups were uh Overall, you know, with all the limitations, with all the contradictions, like any social movement, the piqueteros were essential components of Argentinian democracy. You know, they were a way for the most marginalized, those that had been hit the hardest by the crisis, to actually organize, come together, find a way to survive, and express their, you know, their demands, you know, articulate their grievances, and demand that the Argentinian state respond to you know, the needs of the most vulnerable populations. So just quick, quick background information, because you're, you're alluding to it. In like the late 90s, early 2000s, Argentina suffers, and you're, you're the expert in this, obviously, but suffers a, a major economic crisis, right? And these, these movements of people who are basically left unemployed uh, come out of this. Um, and they're called piqueteros because roadblocks are part of their strategies, Um and they've become huge around the country. Um, but you start researching them in, I think, is it 2013? Is that right? 2011 was 2011, the first sorry. time I, as part of this project, I, uh, yes, visited, you know, I started working with these organizations. So, but you're studying organizations that in many cases have been around for, for more than 10 years, right? And the, the sort By of the, the dynamics. Time, yeah. yeah. The dynamics of yeah. the movement have, have changed. There's even a, a, a national government that uh, at least some of the organizations are sympathetic to. Um, oh, yeah. No, you... I mean, the, 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 the reason why the Piquetero movement has been so, you know, sustained, you know, the Piquetero movement emerges as one of the many experiences around the great Argentinian crisis. And you need to understand that the Argentinian crisis is not just 2001. December 2001 is the most visible when everything sort of exploded. But, you know, the crisis truly starts in the late 90s. You know, late 90s when, you know, the model of, you know, the one-to-one, you know, peso-dollar exchange and, you know, all these policies start to show signs of exhaustion, right? And you could see, you know, the crisis takes four years, but actually... The, the problem with unemployment becoming, structural unemployment becoming a big deal uh, starts in, I mean, really starts in the 70s. But uh, in the 90s, you start to see that even with times, even you, you have like a economic growth that doesn't create jobs, actually destroys jobs. So even in times in which you have economic growth in the 90s, you have people that lose jobs. And it... In my opinion, in my experience, and I was a kid at the time, when it really, truly became a real thing was in 1995 with the tequila crisis associated with the you know, Mexican collapse of 1994. That's when unemployment for the first time in Argentina hits above 15%, which was a completely new thing. And it gets better in the recovery, but it 
eventually starts to get worse, you know, again in 98. And unemployment doesn't stop rising, right? So the Argentinian crisis is, is not just 2001. Uh, it's actually a much broader process. Even in the terms of contention and collective action, um, 2001-2002 is a peak of a cycle of contention that exceeds by many years, you know, starts way earlier and ends way later. And in some arguments, you know, in some ways, it never ended. One thing I, I think that's really interesting about about your book is you're you're sort of taking this um, you're focusing on life histories a lot, but you're also your your ethnographic research is focused on this moment when when the peak is past. I think it's it's fair to say the peak of activism and and contention. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about that because um, you you say I think in a in a few points you know explicitly we sometimes focus on on big protests and there are protests in the book, right? There are you know campouts and roadblocks, um, but you talk a lot about uh, the value of field work on on the days when nothing happened, um, when you're observing unremarkable tasks and sort of the the day to day of the organization, which is really central to um, central to your analysis. Um, and it's appropriate to ethnography because I think a lot of ethnography is we, we sort of wait for something remarkable to happen, but, uh, actually your analysis is very much rooted in the unremarkable, the mundane. Um, so can you sort of walk me through those days? Uh, what, what are you doing? Are you going to sort of an organizational center? What's what's going on in these organizations? What are your experiences like? Let me first go back a little bit. Uh, the idea that the peak of contention is over, I mean, you could make the argument that, yes, uh, the piqueteros leave the public sphere after Chong Chu and their mobilization capacity and presence goes down. And not only you have fewer piquetero presence, um, in the streets, but you also have other organizations that adopt methodologies, you know, that the piqueteros uh, popularize. You know, you have like, you know, environmentalist activists, you know, blocking roads. You have, you know, in 2008, landowners, you know, uh, some of the most privileged groups in society end up actually, you know, taking, you know, the, ro- the, the roadblock as a tool. So, uh, I mean, you do have that the organization, because the organizations lose some presence, yes. But what is important, and when I started my project, my idea was to try to understand the, what I saw as a decline of a movement. But that's the beauty of ethnography. As soon as I started going to these organizations, I realized these organizations are not declining. They are less visible on streets. The numbers of overall people they mobilize are less. But when you go into their actually... Uh, in many aspects, you know, when you go to a day-to-day life, they have strengthened. They have more know-how. They have they have consolidated an inner core of committed activists, you know, that joined due to desperation, and now they are like committed to the group. Um, they are recognized as by the state as managers of uh, public assistance. Uh, they have developed formal and informal relations with the state officials, uh, you know, that allow them to, you know, be effective in their work. So in other words, what I was seeing was not a decline. What I was seeing is a change, you know, and in some ways, an institutional strengthening. Um, So that is, first of all, 
you know, what the ethnography gave me. And the ethnography involved, you know, the day-to-day life because that's what you saw the, the strengthening, you know. Social movement theory, social movement scholars, we are quite naturally drawn to the extraordinary, right? We are, you know, social movements break what is normal and established, you know. They they create new things. They uh, bring new ideas and new uh, topics to the public agenda. They develop new strategies. And in the experiences of people, social movements break much of the things that people experience and they expose them to new ways of life, new ideas, etc. But the day-to-day of life of most social movements is, for lack of a better word, unremarkable. You know, um, in my case, the, what is super visible in the media and in some, you know, um, academic studies, yes, the demonstrations, the blockades, some of the most substantial protests, yes. But the vast majority of time activists spend in these organizations is, you know, mundane. You know, they show up every day, they do paperwork. Okay, there's a lot of paperwork involved. Uh, These organizations manage, uh, you know, warfare plans and, you know, they therefore have to do a lot of paperwork for the state. Um, They do have endless meetings, endless meetings, endless meetings, you know. Uh, There's also the day-to-day, you know, aspects of any community service program that these organizations do or public infrastructure projects they do, productive projects, you know, cleaning curbs, mowing grass, you know, doing community service, uh, picking up trash. Uh, Those that that have some sort of productive projects funded by the state, (coughs) they do that. You know, they construct, they build things. They, you know, the day-to-day experiences involve a lot of these people show up at, you know at some time in the morning mostly and they had to do all these things and it's unremarkable but that's precisely what is appealing so when when people are doing this are you know you had extended periods of field work are you are you showing up with them are you are you cleaning curbs are you are you participating in yeah. these activities yeah i that's a good question. I basically did uh, basically what I what I what they want me to do. So, uh, in some instances, people you know they were just happy to have me there, be a fly in the wall. And other times, I just became part of it. You know, people become a bit added to your presence, so I am just there. Um, sometimes people, you know, I was happy to work with them. You know, doing whatever they were doing, cleaning curbs, whatever. Um, the thing that I wanted to avoid is, first of all, I didn't want to, you know, claim that I was, had become an insider. Definitely mm-hmm. not. You know, um, I, I think I would be fooling myself if I claim I would become an insider. But I also didn't want to be a complete outsider. You know, these groups are used to, uh, you know, highly educated, you know, state bureaucrats you know, that come from another part of town and they tell them what to do or Mm -hmm. they check their work, right? So I didn't want to be that. So, um, you know, basically I showed up and whatever the group was happy and comfortable with me doing, 
I would do it. And it also, uh, there's a, there was a point where you write about where it seemed like they had, um, th these are organizations that have been studied a lot. And it, it seemed like they had at least some familiarity with researchers coming from the outside. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I always think that... No, that um, was a... That was a... Go, go ahead, Alex. No, no, I just always, I always think that in these, in these settings, you know, people try to understand uh, what we're doing as researchers and they sort of have these, uh, you know, preconceived, based on their experiences, sort of these preconceived boxes to put us into, whether that's, you know, the state person who's coming to, to uh, sort of supervise their work or it sounds like they at least had some access to yeah, I mean, or some understanding of researchers. Oh, Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of my experiences, the most common thing, I mean, I was, I'm an Argentinian, uh, I live in Buenos Aires, in the greater Buenos Aires, okay, for 25 years, okay, um, like, and people still thought I, many times thought I was a foreigner. They're so used to foreign scholars mm. to come, who come and, um, you know, study them. And... Like, there was, like, an interesting, you know, it was interesting how long it took me for people to understand that I am not American. You know, I am not a foreigner. I'm Argentinian. And I'm actually <laughs> from a middle-class part of town, but, you know, I am from the same town. I mean, I'm not even from, from Capital, you know, from the downtown Buenos Aires area, you know. I am from the Conurbano, the, 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 the area, the greater Buenos Aires area. I, I'm familiar with the soccer clubs that play around here. I am culturally used to so many of these things. I mean, in other words, the, the, the expectation of foreigners coming to study them uh, shaped the perceptions of how people perceive me. And that was, that took a long time, you know, to, uh, to change. And also part of the thing that, you know, made a difference is that I kept coming back. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was lucky and fortunate enough to have the resources to keep coming back and gather all the data I needed for my dissertation and to, you know, go back and, you know, after the dissertation was done, go back. And all that meant that, you know, created a sense of, uh, again, you never become an insider. I could never claim to become an insider of this movement, but I could undermine some perception of outsiderness. Now, you studied uh, various organizations, right? Um, I think yes. I'm, I'm trying to remember there were a few different counts, but like five that you really focused on and sort of eight that you chose. I'm probably getting that wrong. You can you can clear that up um, for us. But uh, basically, yeah, nine, the, nine in general that I studied overall and everything. And then as the as the fieldwork started to become more concentrated and I was feeling more the pressure to complete the dissertation and get the data, I focus on four, you know, to sort of like be able to, um, you know, focus more on the internal dynamics of the organization. Was that, was that a choice that you made from the start? I mean, there's, there's sort of a tension between going into depth on one organization or having a, a, a broader survey of what's going on with multiple organizations. Obviously, you could have ended up focusing on on you know, 15 organizations and had a much um, broader but less deep panorama. How, how did you make that choice? Uh, I mean, 
I, I, it was so the decision to focus on nine organizations actually was more or less planned. Uh, I wanted to focus. There were like lots of groups, so I wanted to you know have like some geographical diversity, ideological diversity, uh, diversity with regards to the relations to the government, the national government in particular, uh, also in terms of size, uh, and so I decided to focus on eight groups. Um, then. Uh, one group I called them and they told me, yeah, we were in this group and now we're in another group. So I mm-hmm. thought that would be a good idea to focus on that group. Um, so th- that was planned. Now, the focus on the four organizations was I always had in the back of my mind that I would need to focus on like more, like, you know, focus more or less. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, uh, trade quantity for mm-hmm. quality in the sense, you know, I've spent more time with fewer organizations. But um, that was an idea I always had, and eventually I made a decision uh, by the by the time I uh, I was doing the the final stage of field work, um, because at the time I didn't know I had funding for six months and then I had more, but you know I knew I needed to concentrate, you know, just to have the research, the data I needed to do my dissertation. And everything else, you know, it's extra great, amazing, but I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, and the research question at the time was much more sharp, you know, was very clear what I wanted to understand. And I, that, that involved focusing on few organizations for more time. Now, on the other hand, you develop relations with groups, you develop, uh, mm-hmm. you know, associations, you, and these groups can invite you to things. Or you go to demonstrations or events and you find these groups. So, so it's not like um, I was always allowed myself the flexibility to, like, you know, visit organizations that I have worked a little bit less now. I still visited them. I still hang out with them. I still, you know, talk to them because uh, it's not that I ignore their experiences. Mm-hmm. And did you, when when you're focusing, say, on like four organizations? Uh, in particular, are you doing like one month with one organization or is it, you know, Monday with one, Tuesday with another? No, no, it's, it's, it, it's impossible to have that, that level of organization with this group. Um, I just kept visiting them regularly, at least once a week or more, you know, with each of the four. Uh, but it's not like organizing like Monday, this one, no, no it's, it's just like, um, you need to understand the level of vulnerability that this movement is dealing with is such that, uh, I mean, it's not that easy to, 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 to they, they don't have a, a key, you know, a, a schedule. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's much more, um, you know, you have to have much more flexibility. So no, it's I, it's not that I focus one month on this one one month. No, I just keep visiting regularly and going to everything I was invited to. Uh, I I just kept going, you know, every time, all the time, basically. Persistence is a a crucial ethnographic trait, I think. Oh yeah, I mean, yes, and also flexibility. Always take advantage of a research opportunity. Okay. These organizations deal with all sorts of things that hinder their work, you know, uh, inefficiencies by the government, red tape, um, lack mm-hmm. of supplies. Like uh, one government agency signs them up for a particular community improvement group and another agency that has to give them, you know, the tools to do them, they don't. Or, you know, 
uh, they had to get some tools from the local government and the local government, you know, does not like them that much because there was a demonstration a few weeks ago in which they demanded something unrelated to this thing. But, you know, and they, the local government will not give them the tools. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that hinder the work of these organizations. And also, uh, you know, these organizations are constantly mobilizing to make sure that, you know, deals are enforced. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's all sorts of things that these groups are organized with, like, you know, uh, police violence, they mobilize against that. You know, instances of, you know, um, you know particular uh, demands that they have related to issues of, like, you know, access to health or education services. Uh, the, you know, the different demonstrations for, you know, the related to the human rights movement. All these things are, you know, it's very different things that, you know, hinder the consistency of the work of these organizations, okay? Mm-hmm. And this is a constant uh, trouble that these organizations have is that um, many times they have the people ready to work, they have all ready to go, and they don't have the resources to do it because there's some sort of red tape involved, and they still have to make their members show up, you know? And this creates all sorts of conflicts. I can imagine. Um so Marcos, it's it's clear that you have at least some sympathy for these for these organizations, um, but you also talk about in the in the methodological appendix of the book sort of the tension between neutrality and support. Um, and right now, you talked about you know you weren't completely an insider, but nor did you want to be uh, an outsider. Um, and the the conclusion that you come to is that, that you ended up presenting yourself as what you call uh, an allied sociologist. Uh, so how did you come to this approach? Um, was this something that you sort of figured out from the start? Was it a process? Um, and also, like, what does this mean? What did, what did it look like when you were meeting activists? Uh, and how did people respond to you? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, the thing is, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to study different organizations. Um, I had the option to do, and, and many people have done this, you know, of doing a deep, ethnography of one organization and these studies have been amazingly useful they have been great but that's not what i wanted to do i really wanted to study different organizations um and you know this has to deal with how the research question evolved and also how you know the, the fieldwork itself evolved so i knew i basically i just shared my opinion you know my general view of the movement is this is a movement that is very uh, that that is you know makes amazing contributions to Amer- uh, Argentine democracy. I mean, I just think it's uh, the contributions of grassroots organizations like the Piqueteros to Argentine democracy are uh, immense. I mean, this is a movement that I think honestly think is good. Okay, but it's also a movement that, where it has many different organizations, and these organizations have very strong differences with each other. Okay, and this is common in social movements, you know. Uh, And also, these differences have to deal with ideology, has to deal with, you know, their particular strategies, they have to deal with their relations to other forms of organizations, but also uh, with their relations between activists, you know. 20 years, 25 years of being a very important movement create experiences for people, and these experiences sometimes are great, you know, sometimes are experiences of conflict, and that creates further barriers. 
So what I said from the beginning is, look, I'm studying different organizations. I think the Piccadilly movement is very good. And I am an ally of the movement, but I'm also studying different organizations. And when anyone asks me the specific organizations I work with, I share the names. Uh, and uh, But of course, I also made very clear that I would not share the names of anyone who participated you know, in other organizations. In other words, if someone asked me which groups are you working with, I would say they, but I, if someone had asked me, and I, would, and I would never did, uh, who did the interview in that group, I said, I cannot tell you that. And this actually worked rather well. Um, you know, I, my sense is that most organizations didn't really care. They just accepted the fact that, you know, uh, someone who wants to study the movement will work with different organizations. Okay. And, you know, this was sort of like, you know, trying to find this balance between insiderness and outsiderness, you know. Clarify that you know I am um, un amigo de la casa, friend of this place, right? Um, you know, friend of the house, like someone who is friendly to the movement and you know has been coming back and back and back. You know, always keeps coming back and uh, you know visiting the groups, but also that you know I was also not a member of this particular organization. Okay, and this worked actually rather well. You know, most most groups uh, really didn't have any questions with this. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so we've uh we've spoken a lot about sort of the the day-to-day -day and the the ethnographic observation uh marcos but um one of the things that i really liked about the book uh is that there's a tremendous grounding in people's stories right you did a bunch of life history interviews and actually a lot of the writing throughout throughout the chapters is you're telling people stories, their experiences over time uh, based on these interviews and sort of showing the meaning uh, through this that the participation in the movement has for them, or participation within these organizations. Um, so I wanna ask you about these, these interviews um, and some sort of nuts and bolts questions, but I'm, I'm curious, because uh, sometimes we hear, I think you did 133 interviews, which is a lot, um, sometimes we hear that, you know, it's best to do interviews at the end of a project once you already have, you know, more trust with your interviewees. Um, so when, when were you interviewing people? How did that work? Did you wait to build up trust or, um, did you feel like you really needed to, to get moving on interviews in order to do so many? 
No, I mean, I saw him doing interviews during the preliminary stages of the field work, in which I had, I was just trying to see, you know, what's the research question here, what's really, you know, things like that. Um, and as the project evolved, it became clear that first of all, the research question I wanted to study was really about the, you know, the the life stories of these people, and also the life stories interviews just flew better. You know, they have a much better flow. You know, of in, I mean, they, 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 there is like a number of decisions and epistemological decisions I made. But for the most part, my interviews just became, okay, let's sit down and talk about your life. Where are you from? How was your childhood? Tell me. Tell me your life. Tell me what you want to share about your life. And people share. Share their lives. Because we, in I'm convinced of this, social movement theory needs to give uh, the same... Um, you know, explanatory value, explanatory power to the experiences of people outside of a social movement as the experiences inside of it. People do not compartmentalize. Most activists do not compartmentalize, you know, their lives in the movement. It's just one aspect of their lives, you know. For some, it's a fleeting, small, rather an important aspect of their life. For others, it's the most meaningful aspect of their lives. But... In, 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 in all cases, people don't tend to separate this. So if you listen to them, just, just tell me how your life goes. And somewhere along that history, life history, the movement shows up, right? And the movement shows up and, you know, but by making that just one aspect of the lives of these people, you can see the connections, right? You know, the guy who tells you, I just love being locked in a factory. The guy who tells me, you know, I just seriously love going there in the morning and being in there until I leave. I didn't even care what I produced. I just like to be in a factory getting stuff done, producing things. And that is, you know, that explains so much of why this person is in the movement, right? So the movement is the place where the guy could do something like that, showing up sometime in the morning and working several hours until, you know, the end of the day, you know, like he did in a factory. That is, you know, that connection. The person, that person is not compartmentalizing it. Okay, he's not separating it. So the in life inter history interview worked like that. And it also, it flows better. And it's, you don't impose truly... Uh, the person's, uh, you don't impose, you impose less of your own preconceptions or ideas or things like that. The person just tell me your life. Okay. And I um, did ask a question about why they were in the movement, but I left that for the end. Okay. For the end, if you had to tell me why do you stay in the movement or why do you leave the movement, but before, like, just tell me your life. And, and it's fascinating. People's lives are fascinating. You know, and it's also, I have to say, extremely, uh, it, it, it is challenging. Uh, it is challenging because the emotional investment of listening to 130 lives, you know, with everything about them, their joys or sorrows, people will share things that, you know, you know, are extremely happy. And they will share things that are terrible, truly awful things. Uh, the emotional investment of learning of going through this, um, the, the 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 
the, 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 I don't know how to describe it. It's, there is the uh, responsibility that emerges as a researcher when someone shares their lives with you. Uh, here's my life. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's truly, it can be overwhelming. Like, here is my life, and I'm going to share things that I haven't told anyone or that I told very few people. And I'm telling you this because I know you want to understand my life. And here it is. And the person shares something that is very private or, you know, just because this person wants you to understand their lives. That is an enormous responsibility. And, you know, it's, it became one of the defining characteristics of the research. Totally agree. And I'm, I'm often surprised by how much people are willing or even want to share with people, you know, with a researcher they may or may not know that well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, the, there is a lot of discussion and methodology about interviews. And of course, different projects require different strategies and things like that. And I am, this project has made me just convinced of the value, at least in some circumstances, of the least structure, the better. Let the person tell you their lives. And, uh, of course, have a structure, have an idea, you know, but you will find incredible things. So, Marcos, you did. You just did a, a very good job summarizing um, one of, or maybe the book's central argument uh, in, in sort of the story of the man who really enjoyed being shut up in a factory uh, all day um, and sort of how that that motivation and and missing that based on uh, economic changes uh, motivated uh, movement participation. Um, I'm curious, I can imagine that if when you asked when you asked him at the end of the interview why he participated, I can imagine he might have had a, a different answer. Um, you know, put, put differently, you make a very compelling case about why people participate. Uh, did they agree with you? I know, I know you shared your findings uh, with, with these organizations that you actually translated articles, you brought them back. Um, how did people respond to these findings? Actually, in all honesty, I didn't think that... I didn't so I, I went back I first of all I offered to do talks with these organizations uh, one of them was like super enthusiastic got like a lot of people like seriously others didn't care they didn't they I mean these are people who are like fighting to feed people you know they're like dealing with the most vulnerable you know they are the last life on line of defense for so many like a presentation by a sociologist might be not very high in their priorities, you know. So I understood that some people I made the offer several times. Then I brought back <clears throat> the findings. Some uh, of the groups were like they took, so I printed copies, I brought the translations. Uh, the translations eventually got published in journals in Argentina. I brought them the translations. I wrote, some of them took it like. A symbolic gesture, thank you very much. You know, let's take a picture with the thing, you know. Others, you know, started immediately making copies so more people could read them. Um, I, 
I think that the, the overall is people agree with the argument that they, they, they are workers, they are hard workers who are trying to work. And one of the most painful aspects of these organizations is that they are many, for, for the participants themselves, they are accused of being lazy or freeloaders or, you know, gaming the system uh, when they themselves see themselves as hard workers. And in many times they work extremely hard, you know. Um, so, but this is the thing. We sociologists, we ethnographers, many times have an inflated sense of our importance. You know, look, this research will show this new aspect of this movement, you know. And when you take it to these people, these people, for the most part, I found that they wanted to participate in the group, in the experience because it was good. You know, they liked it. Many times, you know, they found it as a liberating experience of sharing their lives, uh, but also because they wanted to help me. There's this kid here that needs to do his thesis for, you know, finishing a degree. So, yeah, of course I'm going to help him. I mean, these are nice people for the most part who want to help like a student. So that's how they did it. So um, I don't know how every person will... Uh, deal with this and part of the problem with COVID ha- was that it sort of interrupted you know a process of me going back I went back uh, several times uh, after the dissertation was complete and after the articles was published but then COVID hit and you know th- this is a still an ongoing project I'm, I'm hoping to translate the book and have it published in Argentina and you know so I can actually like you know uh, share the book, not just the articles, all of the findings are not going to be that different, you know, but the whole story, I want to share it. But, and so it's still a ongoing project that was delayed by COVID. Um, but but for the most part, yes, some groups were interested, some groups were less interested. Uh, but for the most part, you know, they agree with the finding that, you know, yes, we're hard workers and we work our asses off to try to get this done, you know, to try to improve our communities, to try to, you know, fight all these things. And most of them will agree that, you know, their organizations have some issues and some places, you know, sometimes are contradictions and things to improve, but overall they do a good work. Um, but still, it's a work in progress sharing these these findings because COVID sort mm-hmm. of uh, imposed that pause on this. That's that's too bad. Um, with within those conversations and and sharing your work with people, was there anything that sort of pushed you to rethink your arguments, even in a, a very minor aspect, or uh, or anything that sort of went into no. the the book? No, not not yet. I'm mm-hmm. sure that I will find things with the book that I, you know, and I will find people who say, you know, this is still, of course. But a part of the issue is, is, is COVID. I mean, COVID sort of like imposed uh, a stoppage to call this whole thing. So I went back in 2017. I went back in 2019. Uh, I went back several times, you know, and then COVID hit and that was the end of it. So I went back. If I'm not wrong, three times to each of organizations, um, especially the ones that I have focused heavily on uh, after uh, the dissertation was complete and, you know, share all this stuff. Um, But then, you know, that was supposed to be an ongoing process that, you know, was interrupted by, by the pandemic. 
Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's a an experience that that many of our listeners can relate to. Um, Marcos, can you share one story from your field work uh, doing doing honor to our name of ethnographic marginalia uh, that ended up on the on the margins of of your your written work? So something. Just a story that, for whatever reason, you like, but you haven't been able to write about, or that ended up on the on the cutting room floor. For every vignette, for each vignette I include in the book, for each story there are dozens. Truly, it's and it's incredibly difficult. Okay, which one, which one to leave out? Okay, and which one to include? Um. I mean, there's a space constraints all the time, and a book is great because you have the space constraints of a of an uh, of, of an article, right? But this is still, you know, and even stories that I intend that I included leave stuff out, like Lazaro, for instance, the former hooligan. You know, uh, I talked to him, you know, how he used to be involved in some, you know, he was involved in hooligan groups, in you know, uh, soccer gangs, basically. Uh, you know, he was involved in, you know, some violent aspects of local politics and how the movement was sort of a way that he finally could leave that, you know. His story is fascinating. It's a fascinating story of, of a person who, you know, manages to leave violence, you know. Um, and, you know, but I couldn't really develop all that stuff. Or, you know, Isabel, for instance, is a rhetoric in her 70s. Uh, who I cite a few times. I mentioned what he says. She says, but you know, she has decades of involvement in political life, grassroots political life. You know, in many different ways. Okay, I interviewed her for hours, and I could have gone for hours more. It's just a fascinating story of living in poor neighborhoods around Buenos Aires all her life and seeing how, you know, that has changed. I. Uh, you can't. I mean, uh, I, if it was up to me, this would be like, you know, like thousands of pages with each story because they are truly fascinating, okay? But you had to pick one. You had to pick some. You had to pick a few, you know, that you hope will exemplify the dynamics better than others, you know? And that is a very difficult decision to make because, first of all, there is the there's the, 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 the academic side of it, the scientific side of it. Okay, which example is the one that is the best, right? But on the other hand, there's a personal side. These people share with me stories, and their stories are very important, okay? Um, so, for instance, I tell the story of, uh, I call her Milagros, and she tells me the story of how her son you know, struggle with addiction and finally left it, you know, and how she, her, like, her, her joy at having her kid, you know, escape addiction, you know, and settle, have a child, you know, his, his own, and then, you know, uh, she, you know, the, the, the guy's now building a home and getting ready, to, like, the, the joy in this mother, you know, who was blaming herself for the addiction of her son, okay? And how the movement helped her, you know, pay for the rehabilitation, support the guy, all that stuff. That's just one story. There's like dozens like that, okay? 
And it's just like you cannot include them. And it's difficult because yeah. they are worthy stories. But, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, for each of these, there is like dozens. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, you did a lot of interviews. It's a lot of life histories. <laughs> it, it is a lot. It is a lot. I mean, it's extremely rewarding. But also, you know, it is demanding. It is demanding because, like, these people will share with you, uh, you know very joyful things but also very difficult things and both are mm -hmm. extremely emotional processes so you talked about still being in the process of, of going back to to share findings with people and, and especially as you translate the book into into spanish um do you see this as a finished project are you going to continue working with the the Piquetero movement, do you have a different research project in mind for the future? I don't, I don't think any project is ever over. You know, it will continue to inform you. So, like I recently, with Katie Sobring from the University of North Texas, we, we edited a, a special volume about the... Um, the 20th anniversary of the protest of December 2001. And, you know, we wrote a paper for that and on that borrowed from, you know, the lessons from this project. So you never really leave this, you know. Um, I am working on a couple of things, you know. Definitely the translation of the book and publishing it in Spanish is very important. Uh, but I'm also working on projects about grassroots organizations in Northern Argentina, especially in the province of Jujuy. Um, what I want to study is the fragility the vulnerability of social movement groups. Even the most well-researched, successful organization, you know, with experienced activists and, you know, a compelling narrative, you know, even the most successful social movement organization is always at risk. You know, one can change in the circumstances and the movement is in deep trouble. Um, also, I'm, I'm starting to explore with colleagues the you know, ways to study the political consequences for Southern Cone democracies of COVID-19. Um, you know, and this will be a project involving different disciplines, not just sociology, you know, but also trying to study, trying to you know, engage, you know, political science, anthropology, communication studies, you know, all these, you know, these ideas like to study Okay, how what you know what is the the effects of COVID nineteen for democracies in the southern cone? You know the fledging, you know, young democracies of South America, and but but no project is ever you know done. You know, uh, you might work on something else, you might publish about something else, you might move on, from, but but it still it informs your understanding of these uh these processes you know and there's always something to be said about these groups because my, my main concern my main honestly my main concern my main focus of attention is uh the future of democracy worldwide and especially in the southern cone you know and this is personal for me i'm the young i'm the only one of my siblings who live all his life under democratic regimes um so you know how can we keep this going? You know, what's going to, you know, Latin American democracies are still young and fledging. How do we make sure that they are sustainable 
that they are, uh, you know, inclusive, that they keep expanding rights, you know, that they keep respecting uh, the right to protest and organize. So for that, an active civil society, active organizations like the Piqueteros and many others are crucial, in my opinion. So that will continue to be my my focus, you know. Uh, So, I mean, my experiences with these organizations... My focus, my case of study might shift a little bit somewhere else, but it's gonna always going to be, as long as I'm interested in uh, democracy and how we can make uh, our democracies, not just in Latin America, but everywhere in the world, more inclusive, more tolerant, more welcoming, uh, more sustainable. Um, as long as I'm interested in that, I'm going to keep paying attention to these stories I read about in the book, because... I am convinced that organizations like the Piqueteros are essential for the future of democracy. No democracy can sustain itself without an active, engaged civil society, and especially among uh, the most vulnerable segments Mm -hmm. of the population. Those are interesting and important questions. Um, So last last question. that now that you've just pu- published this book, uh, and now that I'm I'm trying to write a, a dissertation, um, maybe you can give me recommendations. Uh, where did you turn, or specifically, what books, uh, whether ethnographies or or other books, um, did you find inspirational as you were writing? Oh boy, I mean a lot, just a lot. Uh, I I mean. I think that listing anything would be unfair because I will forget something. But, I mean, there are many. About the Piquetero movement, there has been a lot within. And I read as much. Everything I could lay my hands on, I read it. Um, my opinion is, like, there's a lot. And there's a lot from different perspectives. You know, um, the Shino Shermani Institute at the University of Buenos Aires uh, has a lot of work about Collective Action in Argentina, and they have done amazing work about the Piquetero group. Um, Maristela Svampa and many others that work with her have were the earlier studies on the group, uh, on, the, on the movement, and there's a lot to talk about that, but they were the first to actually study it in a systematic way, and I think uh, much of that literature was very influential. Uh, then there was some, you know, the work of Julieta Quiroz, uh, Virginia Manzano, Federico Rossi, uh, these are anthropologists, uh, political scientists. Um, they all about the Piquetero movement. You know, this has been extremely, I mean, incredibly helpful. And I'm forgetting names. I mean, because honestly, I mean, there's so much written. Uh, with regards to social movement theory, there's a lot. I mean, social movement studies was, has been one of the, you know, fastest growing areas of research in the world and for sociology and in particular in the United States, you know, which is where I did my PhD. So um, there's a lot of work there. Siad Munson's book on the, you know, anti-abortion activists was very influential. Um, Jocelyn Viterna's book on uh, women's guerrillas. Uh, Wendy Wolford on the uh, landless peasant movement in Brazil. Uh, Catherine Corrigal-Brown uh, she's at the University of British Columbia, I think, and she has this book about, you know, patterns of protest. Um, and, and I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, 
um, Oliver Filiul in, in Europe. Uh, I'm, I'm just like, I'm just coming up with names, but I'm forgetting. Um, there is a, a younger generation, I think, of, of uh, uh, social movement scholars that in the last two decades have come up with new ways of thinking about activism and embrace the diversity, the complexity of activism and the experiences of people in a social movement. And that has been extremely useful. And for theory development, also, you know, lots of things, you know. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to think of young, you know, new things, not just the classics. Um, Haro Shapira book on, you know, vigilantes in the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, was extremely useful but, but thinking like the reasons why people do what they do and you know the role of past ex- life experiences in activism Claudio Benzecli work on um you know opera fanatics in Argentina it's also very relevant because of the case itself but also like how people um validate you know they are each other's you know uh dispositions, you know, how they validate each other's obsession in a sense. Uh Danny Friedman's book on, you know, uh financial self-help, you know, and the the embodiment of the person you want to be. Uh Matthew Desmond, especially his book on Force Five Fighters, you know, about how, you know, people embody a particular attitude that they want to be. I'm just look, I am right now I'm looking at the uh, books in my bookshelves and I keep coming up with others and others and others. So I'm going to stop there because this could take forever. Um, this is just top of my head. And, and again, no, well, I'm sure I'm forgetting many. Of course, of course. No, no, the, the point isn't to, isn't to list every... Because obviously um, the project that, that came out of a lot of reading... Um, but I think those are some really helpful recommendations. Um, and Marcos, I want to I want to thank you very much for uh, for coming to talk with us about this wonderful new project. Um, the book from Cambridge University Press is Proletarian Lives: Routines, Identity, and Culture in Contentious Politics. Um, I was really really impressed. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, so congratulations, I'm glad, I'm glad. Uh, congratulations, and thank you so much for for sharing your your ethnographic experiences as you were writing it. Thank you very much. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.